0: On December 24th, at Christmas Eve, in the year 1968, the crew of the Apollo 8 spacecraft, on the fourth day of their flight, uh, orbited the moon. It was the most watched television uh, broadcast at that particular time. It was also the first time ever for a, a human being to witness Earth rise. In fact, this is the a photograph that was taken out of the uh, cockpit of the Apollo 8 uh, up here on the screen. As this, uh, as this event sort of began to unfold, the three crew members, uh, Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, Frank Bo- and Frank Borman, uh, interestingly took turns reading from Genesis 1. Uh, Bill Anders said, quote, We are now approaching lunar sunrise, and for all the people back on Earth... The crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. And then he read from the King James Bible, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 4, Lovell followed by reading verses 5 to 8, and Borman read verses 9 and 10. For our purposes this morning, I actually would like for you to follow along as I read uh, not just these 10 verses but the entire chapter and slightly into chapter 2 from the New American Standard Version encourage you to to pay close attention to the intensity and the force of of this particular text that is familiar to to many of us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit. With seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. And subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. This morning I would like for us to consider this opening chapter of the first book of the Bible, a chapter that has not only been ridiculed and mocked by those outside of the Christian faith for centuries, but sadly has in recent years been twisted and watered down by many who profess faith in Christ, challenging what has been considered orthodox teaching for almost two millennia. What can we learn from this opening chapter of Genesis? And And why is it so critical for us to know what it says and to be prepared to stand with confidence and conviction in the face of skepticism and in our day even scorn? I would like to give you this morning five reasons why. Five five reasons why as believers I believe it's so critical for us to know how it all began five reasons why it's so critical for us to know how it all began, or, or maybe five reasons why we should stake our very lives and our very future on the truth of Genesis 1. For starters, because it explains the beginning of all that we know. It explains the beginning of all that we know. This, this is the record of, of creation in six consecutive, literal days of all that we know that exists in our universe. This is, we might say, the absolute beginning. In fact, the very title of the book, Genesis, is the word for beginnings. Dr. Henry Morris said this in his commentary on Genesis, that this book, the book of Genesis, gives us the only true and reliable account of the origin of all things. All things. They're all here, not just in chapter 1, but especially in these first 11 chapters of of Genesis. Now, as you pick up your Bible and you begin to read, it it simply reads like what we call historical narrative. Uh, It's like a written account or or a written report designed to uh, acquaint us with or to make us aware of the first things the events that happened first in human history and the foundational principles of human existence. Uh, we quickly uh, notice a, a general set of ingredients that appear in all six days of creation. There, there's an announcement. We find this phrase, then God said. Uh, then there's, we see a divine command using the formula, let there be or some other form of, of the word let. Uh, next, there's a report, and there was, or and it was so, then an evaluation by, by means of the formula, God saw that it was good, or in the case of the final day, it was very good, and finally, a placement in time, using the formula, there was evening and there was morning, the whatever, whatever day. So God formed, God formed creating light, creating sky and sea, uh, dry land and vegetation. He then filled in the canvas, if you will, with the appropriate creatures, light bearers, uh, birds, sea creatures, land animals, and people. Now, what what are some of the, some of the things that we are introduced to? As, as, as a book of beginnings, as a chapter about beginnings. What are some of the things that we are introduced to in Genesis 1? And I want to give you a list of a number of things. For starters, the universe is explained for us. The universe is explained, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, words that are so precise and so concise, so condensed, uh, that they are beyond mere human composition. Um, words that literally account for everything that evolution cannot explain. Uh, Herbert Spencer, a proponent of evolution, who developed a philosophy of social, called social Darwinism, that was simply, um, he was a contemporary of Darwin. He basically took the theory of evolution and he applied it to the social social sciences, to, to, to rel- relationships, how we relate to one another in society. And it is, in all of his research, it's interesting, he outlined... Uh, five of what he called ultimate scientific ideas, Uh, categories that, according to uh, Spencer, comprise everything that is susceptible to scientific examination. Interestingly, Genesis 1-1 accounts for all of Spencer's categories. In the beginning, that's time. God, that is force, created. Action the heavens, space, the earth, matter. And those were the five categories that Spencer came up with, time, force, action, space, and matter. So we, we might simply say this, that in the opening verse of the Bible, with a seven-word sentence in Hebrew, God laid out what it took Spencer until the 19th century to catalog. So at the very outset, we, we, our, our universe is explained in seven words. What happened at the beginning? Uh, In Genesis 1, we could also note that order and complexity are explained. Uh, You'll notice that there is nothing before this happens, only God. Uh, In the beginning, God. God created, uh, we use this phrase sometimes, ex nihilo, which is simply a, uh, a Latin phrase for out of nothing. God created all things out of nothing by divine fiat or divine command. In fact, Hebrews 11.3 even makes belief in creation by divine decree the very essence of faith itself. The writer of Hebrews says this, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So all around us we see order, we see organization, we see symmetry, we see uh, complexity and intricacy, all of which implies a creator. Uh, the origin of our solar system is explained in Genesis 1. We see this down in verses 14 down through verse 19. Our solar system, we, we know that it exists. Uh, you may have seen it last night. Uh, you might have seen it this morning. Uh, when I turned out of my driveway this morning onto Holly Springs Road, it was blinding. The sun was blinding. It was just one of those mornings, just blue sky, blinding sun. We, we know that the solar system exists we, we know that it is steady, we know that it is predictable, we know that, that there's delicate timing involved in our solar system, and we know that every society has this cycle of timing and seasons that go on, every society, morning and night, a uh, time uh, to plant, seasons of planting times to harvest, seasons of harvest. Uh, No matter where you live on this planet, life is still governed by the sun and still governed by the moon. And God said, let it be. And it was. And just an encouragement, as you think about the solar system, just encouragement for many of you who may go out this next weekend. It'll be Independence Day weekend. You'll probably go out and see some fireworks. But just an encouragement to you that as you go, out to a, if you go out to a fireworks show and you look up into the sky and you see the sparkling and the exploding and the bursting of fireworks and you hear the screaming, hopefully, of the fireworks and not the people and the whistling and the crackling and, the, and, and, all, and all the people around you and you're probably, you're probably caught up in all this just, just like everybody else and I get caught up in it too, the ooing and the ahing. Just Just re- remember to stop for a moment and to take in the grandeur and the size and the reliability of the moon. Because nothing that man has ever made even comes close. It, isn't it amazing as, as creatures that we, we produce these things and we go out and we get around and we pull out our lawn chairs and we get excited? And, and, and it's only long it lasts for, you know, what, what I mean, I think the longest show I've ever been to is th- maybe 30 minutes. And then we get all excited, and we even talk about it at work the next day. Man, that show was awesome. And the whole while, the moon is just there. There's, this, there's the fireworks going off. There's the moon. And man gets so excited about what he's done. And there's the moon. Solar system, and it's beginning. It's all in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we also have the origin of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere explained for us. We know, we know that... That that mixture of oxygen and nitrogen that is necessary for life exists here on planet Earth but has never been developed on other planets in the solar system. Uh, God brought life. Genesis says, God brought life out of no life. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. That's life. That's growth. That's That's reproduction. If you deny Genesis, you, you, you miss the origin of life itself. The origin of man is explained. On the sixth day, Genesis 1 tells us that God created man. Certainly not out of a sense of his own interior need or to bolster a failing ego. As Irenaeus said, quote, In the beginning, God formed Adam not as if he stood in need of any man, but that he might have someone upon who to confer his benefit. For this is the glory of man to continue and remain permanently in God's service. End quote." Man was made in the image of God in order to lead the creation in worship of the God who created all things. Uh, the first couple was given a mandate to fill the earth, to subdue it, to, to rule over it in, in verses 26 and following, as well as a task we find in chapter 2, verse 15, to cultivate and to keep the garden. And to engage in these tasks and to fulfill this mandate was to be their expression of worship. Their communion with God, their uh, the, the joy of God's presence, the offering of praise to Him were not meant to be set Uh, in some compartmentalized fashion, away from their daily activity. Their daily activity was their service to God and their worship. And they had value. They had value, which is something that gets lost when people don't begin with God. There was uh, another man named Erst Heichel uh, who was not only profoundly influenced by Charles Darwin, but who also greatly affected Darwin. Uh, he became known as Darwin's bulldog on the continent uh, of Europe. Uh, he was also called the Huxley of Germany. But he was notorious, uh, notorious uh, as a scientist who perpetuated fraud upon fraud to promote the theory of evolution. Uh, Heichel uh, studied medicine and science. He was the professor of zoology at the University of Jena, Germany until he retired in 1909, and the turning point really in in his thinking was when he read uh, Darwin's Origin of Species. When it was translated into German shortly after that, Heichel uh, got a hold of that and, and read that, and it really, really changed his perspective. And in a letter to his mistress, he explained to her how he began as a Christian, but after studying evolution became what he called a free thinker, uh, and a pantheist, uh, someone who believes that the, the universe is this, uh, the same, it's I- identical with divin- divinity. Uh, he wrote a book called The Wonders of Life. This was toward the end of his uh, career, published in 1904. But it sort of uh, highlights this this issue of value, that when you take God out of the equation, value diminishes. He says, though the great differences in the mental life and the civilization of the higher and lower races are generally known, they are as a rule undervalued. And so the value of life at different levels is falsely estimated. It is civilization and the fuller development of the mind that makes civilization possible that raise man so much above the other animals, even his nearest animal relatives, the mammals. But this is, as a rule, peculiar to the higher races and is found only in a very imperfect form and not at all among the lower. These lower races, and he refers here to a group of people called the Vedas. They were the aboriginal inhabitants of of Sri Lanka. He also mentions what he calls the Australian Negroes, which were the aborigines, the Australian aborigines. But he's referring to them as lower races. And he says... These lower races are psychologically nearer to the mammals, apes, or dogs than to civilized Europeans. We must therefore assign a totally different value to their lives. And this is, this is, the, this is the consequence. This is what happens when you, when you deny God. This is, when you, this is what happens when you reject the truth of Genesis is, is the value of life. Goes down, and you see this. There's, you know, I've read some things this week, and animal rights groups, and of course, and true. I mean, some of these are very extreme. These, some of these people are nuts. Okay, they're they're just crazy. Uh, where uh, one one lady um, uh, compares uh, us in our slaughtering of chickens for food. So any of you who may go home and a chicken casserole, she compares that to Nazi Germany, and and, and, and actually says it's it's a worse. It's almost a more severe crime that we're slaughtering so many chickens. So many more chickens we've slaughtered than the Germans slaughtered the Jews back during the World War. That is the disgrace, disgraceful kind of place you end up when you deny the truth of Genesis 1 that mankind, that all of mankind, bear the image of God. God made man we could We could just talk about the intricacy of of the of the physical makeup I mean it, it, that alone is amazing, but beyond that we we can reason my wife and i 've talked some about this recently that, that that because because of the way God made us, we can reason and we can think with self consciousness in other words, we can think about our own existence we can contemplate our own existence. Uh, bluebirds cannot do that. I, I just went down to the to the to the dolphin show a week or so ago uh, down at the Georgia aquarium, fantastic. But dolphins can't do that. Dolphins do not reason with self consciousness. Animals are conscious creatures, but they don't reason with self consciousness. That that is what separates us from animals. And it's what allows us to rule over, to to have the word is to have dominion, to dominate, to, to rule them we can contemplate our existence we we can contemplate meaning we can uh, which means we can make sense out of our existence we can think about it we can even become depressed about it god created man as a moral being with understanding and morality because if we if we're all just animals then then why not just kill each other who cares but we have morals We have standards God established. God gave us the ability to rule. Uh, Psalm 8, Psalm of David, in verse 4, David says this, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God or deities, uh, lower than the supernatural world. You crown him with glory and majesty. So human beings were created a little lower than the supernatural world. And yet, he says, we are crowned with God's glory and majesty. Verse 6, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic. Is your name in all the earth? We're not to be cruel to God's creation. Nevertheless, we are to rule over it. Uh, we could simply say this: animals, uh, animals work for us. We don't work for them. You don't see you don't see a cow milking humans. Uh, you you don't see a chicken uh, frying a person. you, you don't see a, a sheep cutting someone else's hair to make clothing out of it. We milk them. We, we, we fry them. <laughs> we shave them. So we contemplate meaning. We, we understand morality. Our, our pastor recently, recently preached uh, out of Romans 1. And in verse 18, Paul says this, this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So he's just, Paul's saying internally, we know that God exists because that is embedded, that is planted within us. And then we look at creation, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." So we look around at the creation, we look around at the creation of God and we understand it, we, we get it. We, we know that we are to relate to God, a creator God. We contemplate our meaning, we understand morality and Paul even says here, we understand our culpability. Morality isn't just a byproduct of naturalistic evolution that is constantly shifting Uh, that is simply conducive for the survival of our species. There really are some things that are objectively good and right, and there are things that really are objectively evil and wrong. Because a good and loving God exists. And each and every individual does have dignity and worth, and this worth, is no less when old age or disability or disease or any number of things threatens to make us less useful for some evolutionary goal of survival. How do we know all this? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. And in the chapter 2 and beyond, we discover other significant beginnings. The, The concept of marriage is explained, the concept of the home and the family unit... Uh, we believe that, that, that traditional, natural marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. Why do we believe that? Genesis 2, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A new family unit is born. I mean, how do we account for the practice of marriage and the inherent family structure that results? How do we account for that? Only God explains that. And every culture attests to the necessity and the strength of the family structure. We've seen this time and time again, that strong societies are built off of the strength of the family. And where the family is weak, the society is weakened. So listen, if you, if you deny Genesis, you miss the only explanation for our inclination to build families by leaving our parents and creating a new family unit. You also have in Genesis the concept of evil explained. In chapters 1 and 2, you have God creating everything and calling it good, and yet when you get to chapter 4, you have Cain killing his brother Abel with his bare hands. Well, what happened? Well, in Genesis 3, we find that universal corruption of every human being through Adam and Eve's sin and disobedience. It can't be explained any other, any other way than a fall into sin. Adam and Eve, Eve had, had fallen, and they knew it, and they knew that, that it would affect the generations to come. Uh, the concept of language is explained in Genesis. A mankind has always been able to intuitively develop symbolic communication systems, to to develop these sort of abstract concepts and to develop communication systems that are complex and surpass anything that animals can demonstrate. How? How is man man able to do that? God gave man the ability to do that. Where do we find that out? We find that out in Genesis. Genesis tells us that this is what happened. And you can go through the book of Genesis and you can read and learn about civilized culture. We don't like to think that they were as civilized as they were. But if you think about that, the, the effects of sin, two, three, four, five hundred years could have gone by before the effects of sin began to trickle down. And, and in my mind, I think those first several centuries after the fall of man, that, that man in general was extremely sophisticated and wise and intelligent and organized but see, we like to think that, w- that nobody's done it like us, that nobody's as sophisticated as we are. Nobody's as culturalized as we are. And yet you go to Genesis and you learn about civilized culture. You learn about government and orderly society, uh, societal structures and social structures, urbanization, music, agriculture, textiles, writing, education, navigation, animal husbandry, metalworking, and ceramics, to name a few. In Genesis, we always also learn about the development and the scattering of the nations. That's explained for us. Genesis describes how we go from one culture with one language to many cultures with many languages. It also describes for us the concept of religion. It explains the concept of religion. It tells us why men are driven to search for life after this life. It's because God made it that way. In fact, in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, Solomon wrote this, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all of his labor, for it is the gift of God. So he's talking about work. He's talking about the cycle of work. The fruit and and the 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 the, um, the net gain, what you gain from the work, and you think that's that's a good thing. It, this cycle of work keeps people busy, and 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 that's that's what God intended. It makes us productive, and when we're not productive, we uh, we we feel the guilt. When we're not productive, when dis- destruction comes, when we're not productive, depression sets in. But he says this in verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. God has so worked that men should fear him. So why religion? Well, because God made it that way. He wanted men to relate to him. He created them for a relationship with him, for his glory, not for man-centeredness. And it is the fall of man into sin that destroyed that intimacy. And one other we might mention, the survival of God's covenant people is explained in Genesis. From the very beginning, there has been a covenant people by God's design. And here we are uh, thousands of years later, and God's redeemed people are still around. Still around. And and, and this isn't some sort of secret society. Uh, This isn't some sort of club that's been perpetuated down for generations spanning all these cultural, all these obstacles, all these barriers, breaking through all of those things. Listen, we, we couldn't pull that off. We couldn't pull that off. We're not smart enough. We're not savvy enough to do that. And yet, all across the globe and all across gen- generations for millennia, there has been a covenant people of God, and, there are continually, and, the, and they are continually following this, this same God, the God of Genesis 1. So why should we stake our lives on it? Well, because it is the record of beginnings, and it contains all that God intended for us to know about why people and things are the way that they are. Secondly, because it helps us to understand the blessings of God are not the problem. The blessings of God are not the problem. Well, what do I mean? Well, if you think about the things that Genesis 1 tells us, that God provided for mankind in addition to his physical life. So God creates man, and, and, then he, and he certainly gives him life and breath. But then what are some of those other gifts? What are some of those other things that God gives, provides for man? Well, God gave man a place to live. I mean, that's fairly obvious. He gave man a place to live, a place to inhabit. Uh, he gave man sustenance, right? He gave man food and drink. Uh, he gave man a job to do, uh, m- we might say, meaningful work or meaningful responsibility, and he gave him a person to enjoy life with. Gave him a person to enjoy life with, and we'd say human companionship. And what I find interesting is, and I've, and I've been this has sort of come to light for me as I've been teaching a Bible study uh, in the la- last several weeks on in the book of Ecclesiastes is that these categories haven't changed very much. So we like to tell ourselves that things are, you know, we're going to go out and do something fantastic and new this week, but the reality is what we do this week is not a lot different than what we did last week. Hello. So there is this sort of monotony, and it's not to say that life is boring or dull, because even the most mundane things of life, right, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we do it for that purpose. But I'm saying categorically things are not much different now than they were in, in the garden. I mean, do you have a place to live? Do you have food to eat? Do you have relationships in your life, human companionship? Do you have a job to do? And what happens, I I find, and this is what what Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, is that we tend to see the gifts of God as the problem. But the gifts of God are not the problem. Uh, These things are not to be blamed for our depression. Uh, These good gifts from God are not to be blamed for our anxieties and and our fears and and our anger. Uh, Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said that in later times men would come who were deceived, false doctrine, seared, liars, seared in their own conscience. Uh, Men, he says in 1 Timothy 4, 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in. By those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if, rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. So, what is Paul saying? Well, he's simply agreeing with what Genesis teaches and what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, and that is that food is not the problem. He's saying, listen, you don't you don't have to abstain from these things. God created them for you to enjoy. Uh, you don't have to abstain from marriage. Marriage is not the problem. Marriage isn't the problem, circumstances, environment, homes, possessions, employment, relatives. Even on this side of Genesis 3 and the fall, all of these good gifts from God remain for us and for our joy. Our problem is, that, is the way in which we use these things. Trying to use them for a gain that they cannot and were never intended to provide. Trusting in them, boasting in them, worrying about them expecting too much from them. But only God himself can satisfy our hearts. That's what Genesis says is God is the only one that can satisfy your heart. And here's some wonderful things, a place and food and people. (laughs) But don't get this thing upside down and don't worship the creation. Worship the creator. This has been true from the start. Adam and Eve were given a place in food and work in each other, but they were always meant to walk with God and to be dependent on Him and to believe that He alone is enough. And we learn that from Genesis. Why else should we go back to Genesis 1? A third reason is because it so clearly reveals the character of God. It so clearly reveals the character of God. It's pretty obvious as you read through this chapter that that God is the main subject of Genesis 1. Genesis 1. In fact, for that matter, for the whole the whole book of Genesis. But it, but it's interesting that the word for God in Genesis one, Elohim, the mighty one. If you go from chapter one verse one through where we read this morning, chapter two verse three, that word for God is used thirty five times. Thirty five times. And usually, when a subject is mentioned and the rest of what is said or written about the same subject, uh, you, you you don't normally repeat that the name of the subject over and over again. And we know this. When we talk in conversation, once we identify the subject and name the person we're talking about, then we begin to use pronouns, referring to him or her or it or whatever. But not the case in in Genesis 1. Uh, We know that the subject is is implied, and yet we see this repetition. Now, why don't we see that repetition? And and I would say it's because... uh, the Lord doesn't want us to forget what this beginnings is all about. What is it all about? It's pretty emphatic that the subject and the theme is God. Genesis is all about God. He is the subject. He is the providential director of everything that is going on. He is the pleased observer as all these things take place. Ultimately, in Genesis 3, he's the displeased judge. As he, as he, as he sees man rebel... Immediately, in verse 1 of chapter 1, we're introduced to the sovereignty of God. To His power and to His holiness. And not only that, but His compassion and His care, his, his ability and His willingness to support and to guard and to keep. His desire to bless. Right? He blessed creation. He blessed man. Genesis simply tells the story. And along the way, you never miss that that God is behind everything. God is behind it all. His character is on display. His words are on display. His works are on every page. And this makes total sense, right? Because the Bible would later tell us in the New Testament letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, the Apostle Paul would say this, that when all things are subjected to Him, speaking of Christ, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. In other words, when all of human history comes to its final consummation, everything will be brought to full and perfect completion under the Creator because God wants to be all in all. When Jesus has redeemed all of his people... And the consummation of the ages has come, and we finally reach the end, and mankind for his rebellion has been has been judged, and believers have been rescued, and we go into the new state, the new heavens, the new earth, and finally the eternal state. Jesus will take all of his redeemed people, hand them to the Father, and the Father will become all in all. And that is why Genesis was written. To tell us how it all began and where it's heading. So that when we get to the end of the Scriptures, we know that that was its purpose all along. That was the purpose. Lord willing, next Sunday, I'll I'll fill in for uh, Shane one more week, and we're going to go to Revelation 22. going to go to the end of the book, so that I can tell Shane I don't know what his problem is, that we covered from Genesis to Revelation in two Sundays. And I don't know why it takes him so long to preach three verses, you know. (laughs) But it's important. It's important, folks, that we know how it all began. It's also important that we know how it all will end. And so we'll look at that. But this is why God fills every page of the Bible. This is why he is mentioned in the very beginning. Because from the moment that God began to create, he has been doing his work for his glory. He is sovereign in His purposes. He's been bringing about all of His good pleasure so that His people are all filled up to all the fullness of God so that one day all of creation will reflect the blazing glory of His holy nature. And all of this is meant to humble us. You're not supposed to read Genesis 1 and come away proud. It's God, God, God. God, it's meant to humble us. It's meant, everything about Genesis 1 is meant to help us to genuinely deal with the man-centeredness and the pride that afflicts us, to inform and to deepen our understanding of the glory and the character of God, and as a result, to change our life. In Genesis 1, God is on display, and it should blow our minds that this is the God that we know personally. Number four. Genesis 1 is significant because its theme will be the theme of our worship in heaven. In Genesis 1, God's decision to create the universe was the effective cause of worship. He created and that which sprang into being through his word and by his spirit as a result of his creative will worshiped. And worship has always started with God. It always begins with God. Human beings were not the initiators of worship, and they certainly were not the only ones to worship. In fact, according to Job 38 verse 7, conscious heavenly beings, the hosts of heaven, sang together and shouted for joy at the time of the creation of the world. Based upon Psalm 96 and Psalm 148, even the terrestrial creation was glad and rejoiced and exalted and worshipped God by doing His will. It existed for Him and it obeyed Him. And all of this was going on before God created man. Which means that when God created our first parents, they came into a worship-filled creation. All of creation, celestial, terrestrial, and human, was built for worship. That creation and all of its diversity would display His glory and evidence His splendor. This is our duty and our delight to glorify God. And one of the ways that we do this is by remembering and praising Him for His creative acts... Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. This sort of ramped up, high volume, high octane praise. Let us come before him, verse 2. Come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. For it was he who made it. And his hands Formed the dry land. It it causes us to praise. It moves us to praise. This is our theme. Not only the fact that God is our Redeemer, but that He is the one who created all things. And I'm convinced this will continue to be our theme for all eternity. Revelation chapter 4, you remember the heavenly scene. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Worship isn't simply or or even primarily our response to grace. It's much bigger, much broader than that. It's extolling and serving Him because He is the almighty creator, not just the gracious redeemer. Well, one, one final reason why we need to know how it all began. Because this is the foundation of our evangelism. This is the foundation of our evangelism. This is where our evangelism must begin. Francis Schaeffer once said that if he had an hour to spend with an unbeliever, he would spend the first 55 minutes talking about creation and what it means for humanity to bear the image of God. Then he would spend the final five minutes explaining the way of salvation. If we want to be effective witnesses to Christ in our day, we'll have to go back to the Bible and learn to present our case as the Bible itself does. We'll need to begin with the doctrine of God as creator, explaining who he is and what he has done. We'll need to explain how human beings are created in God's image and therefore responsible for what they do. How we have fallen from that high calling and that intent. How we need someone to rescue us, to save us from ruin and destruction. We'll need to trace the storyline of the Bible from Adam through Abraham and Moses and David and other Old Testament figures up to that climactic appearing And the work of the God-man, the last Adam, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In other words, we have to recognize that our world is as spiritually ignorant and pagan as the world into which the gospel of God's grace first came. And we must present our message as the Bible did and does. This is our mission. This is our privilege, honestly, and we're blessed That while while people are stumbling around the planet trying to, to grapple with the deepest philosophical questions because they hope that it will bring some meaning to their life beyond the five senses, that here we are as Christians and we know how it all began. We know how it all began. We know the defining cause. We know the purpose of life. We know what is good. So Genesis 1 is clear. God is the only creator of heaven and earth and he is actively sustaining every element of the created order. And why don't people, get, why don't people accept that? Why don't people accept that straightforward truth of Genesis 1? Well, some obviously reject the, the very notion or the idea of divine revelation or inspiration. Many simply, I believe, embrace the theory of evolution which cannot possibly be reconciled with an instantaneous and a special creation of the universe and man. Uh, They they imagine that that this eliminates the judge and leaves them free to do whatever they want without guilt and without consequence. Simply put, it boils down to their love of sin. People want to be comfortable in their sin, and there's no way to do that without eliminating God. And quite honestly, some, I think, abandon the biblical record because they just don't want to be, be viewed as unsophisticated and unintelligent trying to wed humanistic theories of modern science with biblical theism, claiming all the while that they love God when in fact what they really love is their other reputations. That's what they really love. But here's the problem. If you deny the literal interpretation of Genesis, that Genesis account of creation, you've undermined every major doctrine of the Bible. The sovereignty of God, the inerrancy of Scripture, the depravity of man, the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of justification by faith, the gospel itself. All moral obligations to God are null and void. Just throw Genesis out. And that's exactly what is going on in our culture today. God has given men and women over to their lusts because they have suppressed the evident truth about God's reign as creator. And if they won't acknowledge him as their creator, they certainly won't see themselves in need of a savior. Creation demonstrates God's awesome power and majesty. It also reveals God's intent in creating mankind that every knee bow to him and every tongue assent to his absolute sovereignty. If Genesis 1 is true, if Genesis 1 is true, then the universe and everything that is in it was created by a loving and a personal God who purposes, whose purposes are revealed to us in scripture. If Genesis 1 is true, then we bear the stamp of God and are loved by him. We have a dignity, a value and an obligation that transcends uh, that of all other creatures. But if it's not true, then we have no reliable answer to anything. Listen, we, we need to know how it all began. We need to know how it all began. And be encouraged, the, folks, the foundation is not shaky. The, the, the foundation is not shaky. The foundation stands firm. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. May the Lord help us to resist that, the disastrous trends of our day, not only in the culture, but in the church, to faithfully stand for the truth, and to stake our very lives and our future on Genesis 1. Let's stand. Our gracious God, Worthy, the scripture says, worthy, worthy, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Lord, your word says so, and we believe it to be true. Uh, May it make a difference in the way that we live, in the way that we work, in the way that we worship, and in the way that we witness this week. Lord, uh, we also pray for those in our service today who, uh, like all of us, have failed to glorify you, that have actively rebelled against your authority and gone their own way. Lord, may they humble themselves before you. And grasp the significance of the cross, the significance of the death and resurrection of your son. May they believe on him and confess him that they would be forgiven forever. In Christ's name, amen.